So welcome to everyone, Ajahn Damasya from Damagiri Forest Hermitage. And today we already have the fourth session in our uh, eight-session series on the Noble Eightfold Path. And today we will be talking about Sama Kamanto, Right Action. We already had Right View, Right Intention, Right Communication, and now the fourth path factor is Right Action. And uh, starting again with the bad side, uh, Mitcha Kamanto, the unwholesome, the bad, unbeneficial action. And what is that? First of all, uh, the killing, intentional killing of any living beings. And uh, the Buddha was always unambiguous that living being means living being. It doesn't mean just human beings. It also includes animals, even insects. So whenever anyone is intentionally killing any living being, even if it's a so-called vermin, it's already a a bad term, in my opinion, Uh, whether it's a cane toad or a cockroach or an ant or a mozzie, it doesn't matter. Now all beings are afraid of dying, almost all. And just like we have this deep-rooted uh, fear and concern that we don't want to be die, uh, we don't want to be killed, we don't want to die. We want to uh, continue to live. And so the same with um, you know, all conscious beings, even the worm will turn, as they say. Uh, sometimes, uh, I'm not sure whether I should say, either shocked or amused about some discussions whether an animal self-consciousness or how much, or whether they can feel pain. It doesn't need much uh, scientific study to notice that the animals can feel pain and that they try to avoid, even just an insect and an ant, that they try to avoid pain. They're afraid of pain. If one has a little bit of empathy and carefully watches, one can see that even in very simple animals like insects, There have actually been some uh, truly amazing studies about uh, self-awareness. I think they first noticed it in some primates, like I think uh, chimps and gorillas. They were able to identify when they put a little dot, a colored dot on their forehead, and then they put them in front of a mirror Apparently, in some of the gorillas and chimps, they recognized in the mirror image that they have this dot now. They would try to remove it, or sometimes they may like it, or they may even deliberately apply something and then look into the mirror. But what is more difficult for uh, some biologists and scientists to explain that uh, magpies can actually do that as well. If I remember correctly, a study had magpies getting some colored dot or something onto their plumage. 
there's it visible to them, and then a mirror, and the magpie actually clearly identified that. And you try to remove it. We have a beautiful winter, rainy day today, very warm. Holly's just closing the door that we have less sound from the rain. Then some researchers who always argued that maybe a chimp or a gorilla can do it because you know, the brain is so highly developed and what we consider highly developed. But they struggle very much you know, the, the brain of a magpie in this theory and they shouldn't be able to have that level of self-awareness. But the truly amazing one, that is one uh, scientific study which was done at the university, university in Brussels and that was about ants. And they picked an ant. They, they did a lot of research on ants anyhow, so they were quite familiar. And they picked a particular species, which is relatively visual. Depending on the species, ants operate apparently even more on whatever smell or what they feel with their tentacles. And, uh, but some have quite reasonably good visual acuity, and they picked one of those. And then very carefully, they put also a little dot on the ant's forehead. And they also had mirrors, and they described behavior, which was very obviously responding to this particular dot. And after they saw that they had this dot, they would clearly try to remove it or do something with it, and investigate it with their tentacles and with their little legs. And they also noticed that apparently the dot is very critical for the ant because the ants with the dot later got attacked by the others. It seems that it made their visual appearance sufficiently different that they were no longer recognized as belonging to that nest and to this species. And when they tried to return to their ant nest, the other ants would actually attack them and kill them which makes it more understandable that the ant has a strong reaction that they see in the, in the mirror that suddenly they look like they're no longer their own species and that they responded to that. I was absolutely intrigued by that and it will be interesting how those who only believe in the brain can come up with an explanation how the ant brain can develop with that level of self-awareness. Then sure, they certainly want to get, get away from, from pain and they don't want to be killed. So that's why the Buddha recommended anyone who notices that in our own heart, how we are afraid of the danger of being attacked and killed and harmed, that we also grant that to, to other beings to give them freedom from harm, that we are not doing that to them. Lachi, Kayapano, Nyute Dando, Nyute Sato, Sapapana, Buddha, Hitano, Kampi, having put down the weapon, not getting armed, not an arms race, the opposite, putting down weapons, putting down the rod, the rod as a symbol for violence and punishment, and not to have that. And, uh, 
being full of uh, sympathy, being full of compassion, and having uh, empathy for other beings, being able to relate how they feel and experience. And uh, Anukampana literally means to tremble along with. So if one being trembles out of fear or being attacked, one has that empathy, one trembles along with them, Anukampana, compassion, sympathy. And the Samarkamanto in that respect is simply to abstain from killing and to do the opposite, to prolong life, to protect life, to heal sick people, to support people that they can live long, healthy and happily. And same with animals. And throughout Buddhist history, it's quite known that many of the great kings would even establish animal sanctuaries and animal hospitals, veterinarian hospitals, King Ashoka already, in India and later in other Buddhist countries. The second, we abstain from stealing. Mitra, Kamanto, bad, unwholesome action. There's taking what is not given, what is called a theft. Or even worse, a robbery. Robbery even involves a threat or violence. But even if it's without any violence, taking away from others what they own. There's unwholesome. So we develop the opposite quality being content with what we have, being willing to accept if one can't get it by correct means, and say one can't earn enough money to buy that expensive car, then okay, one, one can't get it. And contentment is the greatest wealth anyhow. It's a quality always praised and recommended by the Buddha. So abstaining from stealing is the right action. Now the third is essential misconduct. So it's basically any form of um, sexual abuse or exploitation and any form of adultery betraying one's own partner destroying the loving relationship of, of others who are in a partnership or in marriage. And not to do that and to abstain from that. And finally, not to abstain from alcohol and intoxicants that cause the carelessness and intoxication. What is so bad about having a little drink? <laughs> and one problem is that often it doesn't stay with one little drink. But as the effect slowly wears out, and my 
or you have to increase to get the same effect. It's a typical thing for all drugs. And there's uh, very few people who are able to keep it down to just one small drink. I remember back in day life, I found it myself, and I was not even yet really keeping five precepts back in day life. But I always found it easier and uh, rather not to drink at all than to try to keep it really limited to a very small amount. It's a much better, clearer position. But even if one can limit it to a small amount, uh, it is still harmful. Maybe you should go into some more details because that is often a bit um, controversial. There are quite a few people who say you know, there's no problem about drinking or certain so-called recreational drugs if it's only a small amount and if it's done with restraint. What alcohol and other drugs causing intoxication attack is once at the very fundamental level of spiritual practice, and that is equality of you know, shame and conscience, really or tapa in Pali. And it's also on the very high level of Buddhist practice, and that is equality of sati sampajanya, of mindfulness and clear awareness. And what you hear in the background is a very beautiful downpour, which all the plants and all the beings out there will be very happy about. And so alcohol really has got this two effects spiritually. It also has bad effects on the body. It's a direct poison for liver cells and it's a direct poison for nerve cells. And there's no real um, dosage which doesn't cause any damage. I remember uh, back in my life I did a blood test once and I did also all the um, main liver figures. And I think it was called the uh, Gamma GT, which is the one which normally goes up when people drink. In those days, uh, although I didn't keep the five precepts in that respect, um, my Gamma GT turned out to be in a perfectly fine, like someone who's not drinking, so to speak. However, I did some research and looked into these figures, and it turned out that what is considered uh, completely non-pathological non gamma GT is actually the normal pathological one in the society which is taking alcohol regularly. And if a person from birth or even maybe from pregnancy is already the parents and no one has ever taken a drop of alcohol, neither the mother nor the person themselves, then the gamma GT would be noticeably lower than what is considered low in Western standard medicine. So in terms of attacking nerve cells and then attacking liver cells, and even small amounts of alcohol are actually harmful. And there's many other effects on the body, but I'm not the expert on that. What is more interesting for us is the fundamental level spiritually and the very high one.
very high satisampajanya and alcohol just attacks it and reduces it and destroys it. And on a fundamental level, it is the shame and conscience. And that is so crucial because without shame and conscience, we can't really grow spiritually. The Buddha pointed out that this is the, the very the bottom cause in the long chain of causes and conditions which ultimately leads to the attainment of nirvana. Because if we have shame and conscience, we will avoid doing bad actions. We will avoid doing in the bad communication, harmful communication. We will even start avoiding harmful thoughts and intentions and gradually purification will occur. On the other hand, someone who has got no shame and conscience whatsoever, it is also known in Western psychology as a psychopathy, someone who can lie without feeling any, any problem about it, and someone who may even be able to kill without having any, any sense of remorse or anything. And for that person, it's almost impossible to have any spiritual growth. So we are undermining and hollowing out the most basic quality, the sense of shame and conscience, which is required for any form of spiritual growth. And uh, once one understands that, one wouldn't want to take me even a, even a drop of alcohol. And on the high level, Satisampajanya, I think everyone who has tried to meditate will have noticed that usually we don't have enough Satisampajanya, isn't it? Or do you find it easy to watch the breath with perfect mindfulness and awareness and clear comprehension? for an hour or two. If one can do that for one or two hours, then probably one will attain samadhi. If we can't do that, it indicates Satisampajanya is already too weak. So if you already have too little, even if a little bit of alcohol will reduce it only a little bit, but you already shorten it anyhow. And so anyone who is really concerned about focus on the more the refined aspects of bhavana will be horrified by the idea that to diminish Satisampajanya even just a little bit. There's still another one that's important to consider. Even those people who can manage to keep alcohol on a very restrained level and they take only very little Others who are seeing that may not have that restraint. They may give them the wrong impression that alcohol is not dangerous. And then by the kind of example which is being set in society, the ones who are not having this very strong sense of restraint and they get into, into big problems. So this is the reason why taking alcohol and intoxicants is included in the four main factors of white action. So white action, abstaining from killing any living beings, 
intentionally, even if it's less than errant or kindled. Secondly, to abstain from stealing, from taking what doesn't belong to us, theft. Thirdly, abstinence to avoid adultery or any other forms of sexual misconduct. And number four, alcohol and intoxicants. But what we immediately notice is that this doesn't fill it very much in a positive sense. And we have some guidelines on what is the most important one to avoid. But apart from avoiding these four kinds of bodily action, what do we do in a positive sense? And that is easy to answer if you look at the previous path factors. Because we talked about the right intention. And the good intentions were letting go or renunciation. So we only have to translate the intention thought of renouncing and letting go into a physical action. And was this one way of doing that? Or do we translate letting go into a physical action? Dharma. Dharma, yeah, yeah. Generosity. If there's the intention of letting go of renunciation in one's mind, it is a natural response that we use our body to do something good for others whether it's giving away a proportion of a share of our physical possession, whether it is giving part of our time and energy, whether it is sharing our skills, our abilities, our talents for the benefits of others. And these are all acts of practicing letting go and renunciation in a very simple, direct, immediate way. Interestingly, the Pali, one Pali term for generosity is chaga. And it has both these sides. The chaga can mean being generous, but it can also mean letting go of renouncing. What would be another way by a physical action of letting go of renouncing? Keep it simple. And this is why in the eight precepts, one lets go of cosmetics and particular jewelry. This is why we tend to keep it like precepts. It's a good act. I remember one very beautiful act of getting going, many of our supporters, and we were following the Buddha statue, quite a few ladies who gave, sometimes they inhabited their gold jewelry from their own mothers and past relatives, and precious objects made of gold, they were just poured into the Buddha statue. A simple way of seeing how we can do a physical action. 
what I meant as tagging towards or dating, bowing to the sun god, bowing to the Upacharya, and then Ulumpatu Mandante, may the sun god raise me to the state of being ordained bhikkhu. Cutting off here beard is another act of renunciation. I'm not a supporter, see in the beginning did that as an act of fundraising. She raised quite a bit of money by cutting off her hair. So the Buddha didn't describe that in detail because we can easily infer ourselves. Now this is the wholesome intention. And then we're just translating that into physical action. But the other wholesome intentions were non-ill-will, non-cruelty, or non-harming. So uh, intentions, thoughts of love and kindness, of compassion. And again, once that intention is in the mind, it will quite naturally come out in actions and to make others happy in the not superficial way, not by giving them drugs, and they'll be happy for a few hours when taking the drug or the intoxicant, but in the long time they're in trouble. But doing actions so that other beings they can enjoy in a long lasting health, life, prosperity, happiness, or compassion. Compassion is a wish for beings to be free from suffering. So once we are generating that wish in our meditation, simply mentally, the natural response is if we see suffering, and karuna, compassion is strongly developed in our mind, that we naturally want to do something physically as well to reduce our suffering and to help them, to free them from pain, sickness, trouble, and problem. And the other guidance is the, the first path factor, wide view. And so you have to translate the wide view or understanding of wholesome conviction And our intention and thoughts, the wholesome ones, samma, we have to translate it into a physical action. Okay, maybe a few words on the fourth path factor. And I think we have got the first questions already coming in. Ajahn, what is the Buddhist view of plant life in terms of the precepts and consciousness? That's a very good question. I can't 100% answer that. But it's very clear that um, destroying plants is not included in the five precepts. And one party term for plants is Bhutagama. 
Nagama literally means village or in a wider sense, a home or house. And Buddha is like a creature, a being. So that indicates the plant is maybe a home for a being. And for monks and nuns, the rule is much stricter. And we are actually uh, prohibited by the Buddha of intentionally damaging any plant law. So for a bhikkhuni to just go out and just to pull out one sheath of grass is already a particular offense. And we shouldn't do that. Of course, if I walk on the grass, I may also damage it, but that is not intentionally. But intentionally, even just ripping off a flower or some leaves or anything is already breaking for monks the pachitya about the Bhutagama Patapyatari and the damaging you know, the home of a, of a being, of a creature. And uh, originally the rule came from uh, cutting down trees. And one of the sakyans who had ordained was cutting down a tree which was in the, in the, in the way in the forbidding a kuti. And uh, the story goes that the uh, child of the devata living in the tree, so the, the angel or spirit, the deity, the deva, connected with that tree. Um, and the, the, the child uh, apparently got some injury or harm from that. So from that it appears that, say, cutting down even a tree is not exactly the same like killing but it may be like evicting someone out of their home. You are not killing them, but you throw them out of their of their home where they have been living maybe for decades. However, this is uh, definitely not included in the five precepts for laypersons. Uh, if you ever have to cut down the major plants, in particular trees, and sometimes it is necessary, it can't be avoided. I would recommend normally it's better to avoid it. But if you ever have to cut down uh, trees, uh, please let the devas know beforehand. If you go to the tree, you ask permission from the deva and you inform the deva and explain why this tree really has to be cut down and uh, you request them very politely to uh, move into a different location. That is a very good practice to do. I remember some uh, Taiwanese supporters in a different monastery, they once told a story how their uh, Taiwanese master in, in Melbourne actually had to cut down a tree or even several ones. And uh, he made an announcement that the next day they would have to take them down. And then he had actually, uh, maybe in his dream or maybe in his meditation, I can't remember exactly, he had the devas coming and complaining because they said that the uh, time of notice was too short. And, and he was joking, he said, in Taiwan, one day is enough, but Aussies is more relaxed, they need seven days here. <laughs> so, uh, maybe best if you give them more than one day. And I take that story a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but you get the point. So, particularly if it's uh, major things and trees, it can be good and polite to ask the deva to move on. This is what the Buddha did in that case when the monk had cut down a tree. There was actually an empty tree in the Jetavana. 
the most famous of all the monasteries where the Buddha spent most of the time. And he encouraged the Deva to move into there. So in the end, she was actually very happy that now she lived in a tree in the Jetan. So it is not against the five precepts, and it doesn't seem to be uh, that any consciousness is connected with a plant in the same direct way like consciousness uh, in a human or animal is connected with a physical body. But I think if one develops the harmlessness and non-violence in general, one will usually have a reluctance of uh, cutting down the major plant without any very good reason. Also, it would be impossible for human beings to live without damaging plants. It would be utterly impossible in terms of nutrition, even. So, here's another question by 04534. As in between sounds is silence, is there stillness in between actions? making it impossible to break the five precepts, Ajahn? Uh, I'm afraid no. (laughs) It doesn't become impossible to break the five precepts because there's stillness in between actions. I don't fully understand the argument there, but it's certainly possible to break the five precepts. It's only possible to break the five precepts and whether there's stillness in between actions or there's not stillness, if the action is breaking the five precepts and if it is intentional, then it will have the uh, karmic consequences and it is not unfolding the eightfold path but is going on the side of unfolding the mitcha patipadana, the, the wrong path. Malika, Ajahn, white white speech and white action, same as five precepts, that is, verbal and bodily karma. If you look at the explanations the Buddha gives most commonly, he would use the, actually the three bodily precepts, and uh, the one about intoxication is sometimes not mentioned in, in all definitions. But we can obviously infer that it also belongs there, because it is a bodily action which is mentioned among the five precepts. And regarding verbal action, it is more than the five precepts. So for communication, there's four factors of white communication. And only one about truthfulness is included in the five precepts. So as far as uh, bodily action goes, sometimes the five precepts are even uh, wider than the most common explanation given in context of the Eightfold Path because they also include the taking of intoxicants. The five precepts include that. Whereas uh, the explanations about wrong action sometimes don't ex- include the uh, taking intoxicants. For white communication, it's the other way around. In the five precepts, only the one on truthfulness is included. 
and uh, the other three are only mentioned as a past actor. And I believe the reason is that the Buddha is concerned that we keep our precepts pure and that we get this beautiful reward of freedom from remorse. He wants us to get this beautiful reward of an anavajra sukha, of blameless happiness. And you really get that only if you reflect on your precepts and you come to the conclusion that they are pure. If um, idle chatter was included among the five precepts, it will be so difficult for anyone to ever have this feeling that the precepts are really pure. And I mean, uh, even after a quarter century in monk's life, I haven't met many monks where you can say 100% that they never have an unnecessary and maybe to reduce this communication. This is uh, would be so difficult to have that level of restraint and somewhat similar with um, the inciting or offensive speech. It can sometimes be very difficult to really uh, figure out was it intentionally, was it really offensive, was it an insight, was it meant as an insight, was the voice raised a little bit too much, did it sound angry, and some people are offended about things which were never intended. So I think that is the reason that the Buddha didn't include all the factors of white communication among the five precepts, it would just make it too difficult. In practice, the difference is not really very very much because we, we, we know anyhow that we have to practice that. Now, there's many things we have to practice and going beyond the five precepts. Now, strictly speaking, if you just whack uh, someone without intention of killing, you're not breaking any of the five precepts because the precept, strictly speaking, is about killing and if you're just... Uh, beating or wrecking then, you could argue that it's not uh, breaking the precept against killing. But this is, doesn't really matter so much because it is obvious now, that we should avoid any action now, that is harming others, in particular physically. But the Buddha has, from what I see, has designed the five precepts in such a way that all the really bad karmas cut out, but that it's still humanly possible even in busy lay life to keep that pure. Because the whole point of keeping these precepts pure is that you get this reward of having ease of conscience, having a pure conscience, having freedom from remorse, and having anavajra sukha, a blameless happiness. Because once you have freedom from remorse, and you have that clear conscience, you have this inner source of happiness whenever you reflect on your precepts. It will lead you to the gladness, to joy, to happiness, to rapture, to bliss. And in this way, it will lead you ultimately to samadhi. And samadhi will lead you to seeing things as they truly are. And when you see things as they truly are, the mind will turn away from all these worldly phenomena, they turn away from all sankhavas and experience manipida, repulsion from all conditioned phenomena. And the repulsion will lead to 
the letting go to freedom and release. He's from Hi Ajahn, I recall Buddha taught Vahula to feel remorse after committing a mental action that is harmful to save others or both. Could Ajahn explain why is a mental action more severe than verbal or bodily actions? The letter too that the Buddha taught Venerable Vahula to confess. Yeah, first of all, the, the Buddha didn't teach his son, his young son, Rahula and became uh, the first Samanera, and then the Buddha and personally uh, trained his son out of his uh, loving kindness, and uh, very successfully because at age 20 he ended up becoming an Arahant and experiencing full freedom from Dukkha and Nibbana. But you see, he, he didn't train him so much for experiencing remorse, he trained him mostly to not to commit these bad actions. So remorse is helpful for that. And once we feel remorse, we should use that as an incentive and a motivation in the future not to do the bad actions. But once we have understood that we did something wrong and we have tried our best to rectify it as far as possible, maybe ask for forgiveness. And then with this new understanding, we, we really determine in the future, we will not do that again, then you have to let go. Then the remorse with us becomes an obstruction. So I think this is not a fully accurate description to say that he taught him remorse after committing a, a, an unwholesome actions. The main thrust of the teaching was for Venerable Vahula to reflect beforehand and while doing it and afterwards whether it was beneficial or harmful to self and others. Well, that is the main thing, not so much remorse. And then if we uh, reflect and we realize uh, while doing it or before doing it, that it's harmful and then we restrain ourselves, that is an important point. Of course, if we um, reflect only afterwards, and then we notice it was wrong and unbeneficial and harmful, then remorse usually will arise. There is no point holding on to that. And this negative, unwholesome state of remorse has to be overcome by instead going for determination in the future to not do it again. And then it's time to let go and forgive. Why is mental action more severe? That shouldn't be mistaken for meaning that you have a worse karmic consequence if you're just thinking of attacking someone than actually doing it. <laughs> so usually the karmic consequence, once the action comes out and you actually physically harm someone, it will be much more severe than just having a thought. However, even when you physically attack a person or an animal and you cause a physical harm, which usually has got quite a bit of bad karma, 
the causal factor is still the mental intention behind that. Well, we can see that sometimes we may even kill unintentionally, and certainly with insects. They're living in a tropical forest. They can't live there. They will occasionally cause beings to die, or even if you drive with a car, there will be some flies on the windscreen, and occasionally you may go over a cane toad, or things may happen, but it's absolutely not your intention. And usually, if it's only in your mind, you, you feel very angry and you think now of harming someone, it's actually much weaker. Even just the mental part is much weaker than the mental part when you're actually doing it and you combine the mental part with physical action. This is how we utilize that in the, in the positive sense. You can uh, just think this devotion of the Buddha, and if that is very strong in your mind, you will make lots of good karma. But for most people, when the mind is not so highly developed, when they actually bow to the Buddha three times, the mental intention will be much stronger as well. If that's the way how the human mind normally works, the moment you combine it with real action, the mental aspect behind and happening together with that action will be much stronger than the mental aspect if you're only thinking about it. If someone has a very highly trained mind and psychic powers, they can physically influence the environment just by their thought and intention, and then it's different. But for most people, if it's only thought, then the mental intention is not yet so strong. The other reason why the mental aspect is so much more important is that it's the, the cause for the physical action. So even these thoughts which don't have much karmic effect now, once we repeat them, now they become stronger. If I just close my eyes and I think, may all beings be happy and at ease, there will be some good karma in that, but it's obviously not so much. <laughs> there will be more, more good karma if I, if I go out and actually do something and feed some apple to the horses or something, or help someone. It will be stronger. However, if I think, may all beings be happy and at ease a million times, then you establish an inclination in the mind. Whatever we think and ponder a lot, in this direction the mind will incline. And once this inclination is there, it becomes over time a character trait, a habit. First a habit becomes habitual to think may all beings be happy and well becomes habitual that you want to give something to others or help them. And as it becomes habit, over time, your habits become uh, character traits. 
And you can see that as a Buddhist monk, I'm in the fortunate position to meet so many outstanding, outrageously generous lay practitioners. And you can see for some people it's part of their character because they must have been practicing that probably for lifetimes. And it has become normal and natural for them that they want to give and share and practice dharma. So that is the other reason that uh, uh, the mental one is so much more important. Because whatever we think and contemplate a lot, this gives an inclination. The inclination becomes a habit. The habit becomes a character trait. And at some stage in the process, it starts to flow out into communication, speech, and then actions. And then it will have karmic effects.